Hey everyone, welcome back to episode 3 of the Dog Backwards Podcast. This is the place where we're going to look at life, theology, culture, hopefully from a different angle. So today, I have as a guest the Reverend, Honorable Reverend, Dr. Walker Moore, which he doesn't really go by any of those titles when he's around me. He goes by the title of Dad. That's because it's my father. Now, this was the first podcast that we recorded, but I wanted to kind of wait a little bit to upload it so it didn't seem like I'm starting off with my dad. But my dad is an internationally recognized speaker. He's been to almost every continent in the world. He's done some incredible things and has some of the most incredible stories I've ever heard. And I've been able to be a part of some of those stories. So it's really an honor to have him on. He's highly well-known and highly respected. So, without further ado, it's my dad. Welcome, everybody. Today, I have with me the Honorable Reverend Dr. Moore, who is uh, the author of several books, including Rite of Passage Parenting, Escape the Lie, Chicken Legs, Snake Chicken Lips, lips Chicken Lips, legs, Snake Legs, and, and Jesus. Jesus, the easiest title to remember. Uh, he was a missionary for 25 years through All Star Ministries, taking students all over the world. Uh, he's recently retired and now focuses on writing and his grandkids. Uh, he's got another book coming out. Um, uh, just came out, didn't it? The, the new yeah, one. Inside I've, Out and Backwards. Yeah, Inside Out and Backwards. And you can find all that stuff at walkermore.com? .org. .org, walkermore.org. Okay. Um, and also, besides being an, a respected author, he writes for the Baptist Messenger. Um, he happens to be my dad, so... Easiest guest to have for our first episode of this podcast, and uh, I hope it's easy. <laughs> you never know. And uh, we were just talking that a year ago today we took a father son trip to the Holy Land, right? To the Jewish motherland. We just uh, took a trip to Israel for about a week, and uh, it was an incredible journey as we uh, traveled across the country of Israel, and then you and I climbed uh, Masada, which was the highlight of the trip for me, and on the top. Uh, passing on a blessing to you, and I gave you my Bible that I have traveled with for years and years and years that uh, is all marked up and pages are falling out, and I wanted you to have it. So, Yeah, uh, way to make a grown man cry in a crowd of tourists. So um, he did. He gave me his Bible that he had had for uh, a long time. The pages are falling apart. It's all marked up. I've had it over 40-some years. So, And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on today, because that is— Part of the rite of passage that you've written about, the father passing on things to the son, and mentorship, where you pour into the next generation. In fact, most of the staff here at the church that I pastor, which is called Katusa First, uh, most of that staff has been mentored by you sometime in their life. They met each other. Uh, some of them met their bride or husband on the mission field, going doing mission work with you. And um, so you've been mentoring people for a long time, and now you're mentoring leader and staff at Max Licato's church. So yes. mentorship, what's, what's the difference between mentorship and discipleship? Well, a lot of people think that uh, there's really not much difference, but uh, you know, when you ask somebody what is mentoring or what is discipleship, they give you there's many different answers as there are questions you ask about it. And so I have a little story I tell to help people understand what uh, mentoring is and how it reflects uh, on your life and other people's lives. Uh, I tell a story about this uh, 
lady and her four-year-old boy got on a Southwest airline flight. And in the old days, your family could go back with you to see you get on the plane, walk down the right. gangplank. And, and the mother got on and she got a window seat and she looked out the window and she could see her husband inside the terminal. And you can't do that these days, but back then you could. And uh, the little boy was sitting on her lap and he's four years old playing with all the little magazine in front. And she said, look, daddy, daddy. And the boy kept on playing, you know, and he was just not interested at all. And finally the ma'am the mother grabbed the little boy's face and turned it to the window and says, look, daddy, daddy. And he pulled back from her and he began to play with the magazine again. And finally she grabbed him and she turned his face and finally he caught the father. Mm-hmm. And the boy goes, ah, daddy, 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 daddy. And what discipleship and what mentoring is, is just turning somebody's face and you keep on turning it till they catch the father. And when they catch the father, you've done the first part of what mentoring is all about. And what discipleship is all about is to catch the Father. And once that, then you begin to disciple them and mentor them. But it takes a lot of turning around because they're busy with the world and they got so many other things in their life and junk and luggage that they bring into the relationship. For them to see the Father, it takes sometimes quite a while before you get them to turn and see uh, the picture of the Father. Everyone I know wants to be discipled. But almost everyone I know has never been discipled. So if you tell them... Uh, they, they say, hey, I, I want to be discipled, and you ask them, what does it mean to be discipled? They don't know. They equate it to like a Bible study. Well, I want somebody to teach me this. Why is that? Is that a right answer, or is that a wrong answer? No, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's the end thing right now, you know, uh, but it's been here for a long time. Remember, there was in Corinthians, you know, I was uh, discipled by Apollos, and mm-hmm. I was discipled by Paul, and I was, you know. And, and there's this whole thing about, you know, something cool, something neat. But it's really, in the heart of it, it is difficult, and it is hard to do. And there's a progress to this whole process of mentoring and discipleship. So let me give you a couple of steps on that. Okay. First of all, in, in mentoring, what you're trying to do to get see someone to recognize the truth. And what a mentor does or a disciple does is see somebody walking that doesn't have a truth in them. And now the truth is eternal. The truth works in every situation, every culture. It never changes. In fact, I hear people say, well, he broke the Ten Commandments. No, you don't break the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments broke you. You mm. cannot break them. Right. They're unmovable, unshakable. And that whole process of the truth, it stands from ages. No matter what you say or what you think or what the government does, truth is truth, real truth, biblical right. truth. And what happened is you look at a person's life and you see that there's a truth that's not in their life. And the first thing you got to do is introduce them to the truth. So it's, it's a process, you know, uh, let's take the life of Peter. We'll use him throughout the whole thing here. Peter had to be introduced to the truth. His brother Andrew brought him to the truth. He met not only the, the truth, he met the real truth, the living truth, you know, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and he right. met him there. Mm-hmm. But the first thing you have to do is get a person to say, have I been introduced to the truth? The second step is you have to say to them, is this truth for me? Because when you really mentor somebody, you're trying to get them to do something and to believe in something that they never believed in before. I mean, it's it's not just where I walk along and I pat you on the back and, you know, say good job and you keep on going, love your family. No, this is where you come and say, hey, there is a lie in your life that needs to be rooted out and a truth put in. And so they have to recognize the truth. Then you have to get them to confess, is this 
the truth for me. And that's, you know, we, we don't want the truth because we like our little lies and we want to hold on to them. And we want to say, you know, I'm very comfortable with this here. But that comes confession, that comes repentance, and realize that you have a lie in your life and you need to embrace the truth. Which is, I think, why everybody says they want to be discipled or mentored, and they change their mind really quick when you start getting personal. Oh, what they they want to grow, but they want to grow effortlessly. Like I, I want to, you know, get stronger in prayer. Well, then you need to get up. 20 minutes earlier and spend time in prayer. Well, my job, you know, I, and my kids, so well, that 20 minutes. Let's take, for instance, just like you say in prayer, if you say, I want to grow my prayer life, then I have to say to you, if you have a problem in your prayer life, what you really have is a misunderstanding who God is and who Jesus is. Because if you're praying to a God that comes, that doesn't require much from you, mm-hmm. and you can show up anytime you want to, and you can throw a few requests on him as you pass by him, then the problem is not your prayer life. The problem is your perception of who Jesus is and what he requires of you. Because Luke 9, 23 says, If any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Mm-hmm. Now, your Jesus is not requiring you to do that. So I have to take you past. The problem is what most people want to be discipled in is not the real issue. Right. And yeah. when you get the real issue, then they don't want it. Okay, They, they move on. So, uh, I mean, you just said something about prayer that I kind of want to flesh out a little bit. Like most people have this idea that they just want to show up when they want to show up and they just want to cast their stuff on Jesus. I don't think that's necessarily wrong. I mean, I I go to him throughout the day and I'm just going to I'm just going to dump something on him. Right. Like he's that friend that you call that you don't always need him to fix it, but you're just going to be like, everything sucks. Everything's broken. Help. Right, yeah, you know. but but you know that's that's what your perception of prayer is, and that you're limited to what God can do in you. Right. Okay? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so you're saying like, if you think He's just something to dump your stress on for a second, and then you go right back to doing exactly what you're doing, you're kind of missing how He can guide and direct and get you involved in. Because the Scripture says, you know, take every thought captive. Well, that's prayer. Mm-hmm. Or what about this? Did, is that thought right? Am, am I walking yeah. in your will today? I pass by a guy on a homeless street and I see him and I go, Lord, do I need to do something for that. That's prayer. It's not. It's not about going. God is right. great. God is good. Thank you for the food. Yeah, you know, God. Uh, <laughs> as you know, I used to pastor yeah, a black yeah. church and yeah. be rub a dub a dub. Thank you for the grub. Yeah, Lord. But what happened is, prayer is twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. It's not mm-hmm. there are formal times of prayer. Okay, and when we go to the altar, but prayer is just talking to God. All day long, you yeah. know, it's a That's the prayer time. without ceasing. Without, it's a prayer you know, without yeah, ceasing. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> in, in my experience, um, there are stages of maturity when it comes to believers. And this is something I've really been focusing on here lately is how, how do we mature? What are, are there stages of mature? And I think First John talks about it a little bit when he addresses some as little children, um, some as young men, and some as fathers. And I don't think he's literally talking to those different groups. I think he's talking about levels of maturity. Kids, so, so somebody who's young in discipleship or mentorship, I, in my experience, they're the ones that call you every day or they text you every day because they're trying to figure out how to handle all these situations because they're all new to them, like a child that's new to them. Uh, a young man, and this is probably the most difficult stage of discipling or mentoring anybody, is uh, the teenage years of leadership. So... All the stuff that you just taught them, now it comes to where it's like, oh, they knew it all already. It was their idea, 
and they are going to push back on you. So there becomes a, a stage of mentorship or discipleship. The, the teenage years of leadership, I, I've had young men that I've discipled and brought them up to where they're capable of being leaders. And as soon as they get some kind of leadership position, everything I, I was doing was wrong, and now they know better. And it becomes so you have to work through this conflict stage to get to the father stage. But that's a, the part of mentoring is walking through that when right. they know that. If you remember Peter, uh, Peter was, uh, every truth has to be tested, you know, because mm -hmm. if there's no testing, there's no truth. It, it, that's how you find out the truth is in you through the testing. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people, I got this truth. I love everybody. And then somebody cuts them off in front of the, you right, know, right, yeah. the, the road here. And then you go, I hate that guy. You know, hope he goes to blank, to blank, blank, you know, and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And, you, you know, you give him a the one finger salute and, and you go on and, and God says, I thought you said you loved everybody. You should, when that guy cuts you off, you ought to be going, or I don't know what's wrong with that person, that car, but his heart is troubled. And I pray your Holy Spirit will come in and give him peace today. Can, yeah. can I just say, I've, I've never prayed that that person gets peace. Lord, give them a flat tire so they learn to obey the laws of the land. You know? I, oh, yeah. I have. I've, yeah. I've prayed many times when people cut off. Or, I've pointed you know. the way to heaven before. <laughs> <laughs> you, seen. Yeah, but the, so what happened is that just because these young people, what they have, they have caught the mental uh, concept of the truth. Right. But they've ever, never been tested. I don't know any you know, young man who really have gone through testing. Testing is a long process, you know, and it took Peter a long time. First, he went through the storm, you know, then he had a situation he got into and he denied Jesus three times. Remember that whole scene, right, right, he denied, yeah, denied, yeah. denied, you know, and yet he just, he just said, you know, thou art the Christ, you know, thou art the, yeah. you know, you, you're, you, all things are under your feet. And yet a minute later, he going, I don't know who this guy is, you know, and then he was tested, you know, uh, uh, by, you know, different other things in his life. And Peter failed and failed and failed and until he got to the point that, you know, I thought I knew all this truth. And from the empty tomb, uh, the angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter to come back. Now, why did the angel say, and Peter to come back? He had an invitation, says, hey, I want you to come back and I want you to engage with the truth one more time. Right. And then we see the the scene where, Jesus and Peter are on the shore there, and he says to him, uh, Simon Peter, that's that lovest me. And what he's doing, he's coming back to bring in Peter. All the things that he taught him right. over all these years are coming back. Does thou lovest me? He said, if you do, he said, uh, then serve me. And what Peter was waiting for was the other shoe to drop. He was waiting for Jesus to lambast him about his denial. And, and instead, Jesus, he didn't dress his sins, he dressed his service. Because the truth is, our sins are forgiven as far as the east from the west and buried in the deepest sea. And when he's, he says, you don't understand yet the truth. And at that point, he began to get the truth. And he now can walk it out. In Acts 2, uh, 14, uh, it's a great verse. It said, Peter took his stand with the other 11. Right. What a great. Now Peter is, the truth has, guess what? It has been transformed into him. It's been transferred. It has taken over his life. And you know the truth is in you when it takes over and it changes your worldview, changes your thoughts, changes your behavior, changes your habit. And all of a sudden you walk differently and you do it without thinking. It's automatic because the yeah. truth has overtaken you. And so, that, yeah. 
So when people say, I want to learn to be discipled, well, that means you have to begin to embrace the truth. you got to say, this truth for me. you got to go through sowing, sifting, trials, tribulations, and see that truth is in you, and you get squeezed, and out doesn't come the truth, comes out a bunch of other junk, and then finally that truth gets into you, and it takes a long time. And people, it, it it just... I think it's different. Maybe not different, but I think it's harder for this generation because they they know what they desire they they want to grow everybody i talk to wants to grow spiritually even people who aren't going to church or wouldn't even call themselves christians they say that's an area they want to grow in um and you're talking about testing and maybe this is just because i've been reading the codling uh, of the american mind and it talks about how this current generation parents and the overprotectiveness have never been tested they might be tested academically but they're not tested socially. They're not tested in just the practical stuff that comes with life. So when they get older and something disagrees with a the worldview, they react in these like extreme ways, right? The, the outrage culture that we have. So if we have this culture who has never been tested in life, when we test them, spiritually or when they endure that is there a way and i don't know if you have an answer to this but is there a way that we can overcome maybe some of their upbringing without coddling to help them grow even though they haven't been tested anywhere else well yeah one of the things i think uh, you know that's what we do with our mission experience we take students and put them out there to uh to be tested and they have to stand on their own because what we have done now is what you were just talking about they've been tested with knowledge right but they've never been tested with skills you know you don't learn to ride a bike without falling off and get your knee scratched and hurt and all that kind of stuff you know Uh, we've seen titus or your son my Mm -hmm. grandson you know i've seen him crash you know well how's he gonna learn a bike run a bike he has to crash Mm -hmm. you know how are you gonna learn to do many things in life the skill part of it uh, there is a lot of pain to get to the skill to do it. Driving a car, you know, it's it takes a lot of skill to do it. Either you crash a lot. No, you know, it, but see, well, here's, here's the progression. Like, I, I'm thinking about this uh, metaphor that you're using, you know, and there's, there's, but you start off small because you don't learn to ride a motorcycle by crashing a bunch. Exactly right. right. You, you learn on something smaller. We call those simulator tasks. Right. Talk about okay. that. A simulator task is something that gives you skills for something that is going to be uh, more important later on. I have friends of mine. In fact, I just talked to Dennis, a friend of mine who is a pilot for Southwest Airlines. Mm -hmm. And I said, how did you learn to fly the big plane? He said, in a simulator. Right. They don't put you on the big plane to try. (laughs) You put in a simulator, and there you learn. And he says, and the first time you fly an airplane, you fly it with people on it. You get off the simulator, you get in, and you fly. Right. But you have all the skills for learning. You learn it in a simulator task where the damage is not so great, you know. Yeah. And we do that with children. We teach them a little, you know, carry something to the table, you know, and we don't fill the glass half full. They do spill it. It's only a little bit of water. We don't give them a glass of uh, red Kool-Aid to carry, a, a gallon jug of, you know, Kool-Aid to carry to the table because that could ruin the carpet and cause much more damage. So you want to simulator task and learn the small things first. But this generation doesn't want the small thing. No. They want the forever home uh, the day they graduate college, and they want to the, be president of the company when they you know, sign on. And yet uh, 
in, in, in Swahili, it says, slowly, slowly grows the elephant. You know, mm-hmm. you have to build up on a foundation. And that foundation, if it's not in you, the truth has to build on the foundation. First of all, you have a correct perception of who Jesus is and who God is and the Bible. Those three things right there. If you don't have a correct perception of the Bible, then your foundation is going to be shaky. In fact, the scripture says that build your house upon the rock, not upon the sand. Right. I, uh, I, when I travel and I speak, there's always almost at every like D now or youth camp, there's a couple of kids that come up to me and say, Oh, I want to be a pastor when I grow up. What, what do I need to do to become a pastor? I want to do like what you do. Cause I see somebody up on the stage and they're like, Oh, you know, um, you're in front of a thousand kids and that looks incredible, and I'm having a good time, and everybody's listening to you. It looks really enticing. And I tell them, before you ever do that, teach a Sunday school class. And, well, I'm not really good in small groups, or I, I tell oftentimes, uh, be a youth pastor. Before I ever became a youth pastor, I taught a Sunday school class of eighth grade boys. And that's where I learned a lot of my mistakes. But eighth grade boys are forgiving because they've, A, they weren't paying attention in the first place and they've already forgotten what you said by next week. So if your theology isn't on point, it's a good time to begin to correct and learn how to study, learn how to write. Then um, you can go on to a youth group. Excuse me. I sneeze. Gesundheit. <laughs> oh, so uh, I would do like uh, a youth group. I started with, you know, part time with 10 kids. And this is kind of the be faithful in the little things and I'll give you more was a church planner, and now uh, I, I pastor a church, right? Like, n- not that a church plant's not a church, but uh, it feels very official nowadays. And You have an office. I have an office, <laughs> right? Um, so I just see all these young people that are like, I want to be a pastor, so they go to seminary, and they go right into pastoring a church, and oftentimes it doesn't go well because they're going to make all their mistakes on the big platform instead of the little yeah. one. Well, when I was growing up, and, uh, and that, of course, you think that's uh, the dark ages. Uh, I think well, it's because there was no electricity. You know, <laughs> there, there wasn't in some places. We still had outhouses and those kind of things. But, you know, when, we, when I started out, being a youth pastor was called pastor-in-waiting. <laughs> okay? Yeah. And what happened was, before you ever even thought about being a pastor— you worked in a church, you worked with deacons or elders, you worked in Sunday school, and you had these years of working in the small group like you're talking about. And then when you got some some skills in your life to handle people and to deal with you know, church leaders and all that kind of stuff, then you would leave the youth ministry and go into uh, full-time youth ministry. And now... We have we don't have that progress anymore. In yeah. fact, they, every, everybody thinks they're called to youth ministry, right. which is not biblical. And there's no such thing as teenagers in the Bible and yeah. and all that kind. Of, you know, I've written books on that yeah. subject, but it's one of those things that we did have a progress, a, a way for pastors to be weeded out to test. Because you know, why would you take four years of college, four years of seminary, get yourself a doctor in theology, and you get out and get your first church, and you find out this is not for me? Yeah. And in fact, when I uh, uh, surrendered to the ministry, my my pastor uh, began to put me in stuff like that. You know, he said, "Hey, you know, over here, over there, do this, do that, go to the jail, you know, do this youth thing." And I did the same thing. I taught Sunday school. I taught royal ambassadors. I was involved in just small stuff at yeah. our our church. So I know I've, I've met a lot of people through the years who are going to seminary to become pastors and you hear them speak and they couldn't preach their way out of a paper bag 
they, they have lots of, like, they have this knowledge that we talked about. Students, I mean, you have access to all the information you could ever want. Their theology is great. They're brilliant minds. But they, they've only interacted with people in seminary. And so I was the opposite. I never went to seminary. I, I didn't, didn't either. Barely made it through high school, right? I tried college. It wasn't my cup of tea. We're so not sure I, you made it through high school either. Right. We haven't seen <laughs> the sure. diploma yet. I I, yeah, <laughs> wait for it to come in the mail. You know, it's totally possible. <laughs> and I, I just this whole time I thought I graduated. We heard you graduate. I slightly then. remember a stage, um, but <laughs> it's all fuzzy back then. Um, and so I kind of went the opposite route, where I feel like. I can engage intellectually with somebody that's been in a seminary. I read a lot of the same books that they've read, but I never wanted to be a youth pastor. I never wanted to be a pastor at all. It wasn't like I felt like this was my calling. Um, it just happened to be the way God had wired me, my skill set. And if I want to be used by God, this is where that skill set gets used. I like to talk, right? I talk for a living. And um, so it's either uh, one way or the other where they have this life street knowledge. So I got a lot of guys who have a lot of really good street knowledge, but their theology isn't great. And then I got guys whose theology is great, but they have no street knowledge. And there has to be a connection between the two. So whatever the weakness is, that's when we disciple somebody we have to elevate. But, you know, you and I have talked about this many times, and we call it the uh, School of Mary. Right. Mm-hmm. Because until you've been, to, you, you can know all the theology in the world. You look at the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were brilliant theologians. I mean, they could discuss the, the minute point of the scriptures, but they never been to the feet of Jesus. It's the feet of Jesus that, that makes you uh, uh, be effective in the ministry, you know. Because uh, I know a lot of, like you do, you know, we know people who can, can talk theology, but they can't. They couldn't move a heart if they had to. Uh, and you and I want to see people' hearts move, lives change, transform. But you know what the thing about mentoring is that nobody likes? You have to walk in the dirty places with people. You have to get in the mud with them. You know, Jesus in the ninth chapter, when he spit in the mud and, and anointed the blind man's eyes. You know, Jesus got down the dirt with life of people. You know, we think Jesus being clean and holy and all that kind of stuff, and we see the picture of him glowing in the dark, you know. Uh, but Jesus was one who, who embraced the mud of people's life. And if you don't learn the, the truth, guess what he does? He puts you in summer school, and like he did right. disciples, yeah. he puts them on the boat, you yeah. know, and the storm comes up. And in the midst of the storm, guess who walks out? It's Jesus. And he puts us in the dark places and the hard places so we can know who he is and learn the truth that transforms. That's one of the reasons I think, you know, Mormons do this, that they raise up their kids, expecting them to go on a two-year mission. We as um, evangelicals or Christians, whatever you want to call us, I don't like the term evangelical. I don't know what it's got, we are. I don't know what we are. I just say Jesus follower. Yeah, yeah, I like, I like Jesus. Um, but we don't instill in them. We're trying to get them to college as fast as possible. And oftentimes what the church take the youth on for what they call a mission trip is a choir trip where they're going to sing at another church and then go to Six Flags for three days, right? And uh, this tithe money's been used for this. And I, I think that's kind of silly. Um, but I was fortunate enough to be raised by someone who was traveling the world and doing real mission work. So some of the first sermons I ever preached, if you even call them sermons, I was just telling my testimony, were in the subways of Budapest. And so if you're trying to get people to stop to hear the gospel when they're on their way to work or they're doing something, it begins to develop a skill set in you. And I remember um, we were outside some of the above, um, 
ground trolley areas. And I was talking about how I used to have a drug and alcohol problem. And some lady came and spit in my face. She was drunk, and she didn't like me that I was talking about God can free you from this. She started yelling and spitting in my face. Well, that becomes kind of what I expect then when you begin to talk about the gospel, that people who hate Jesus aren't going to like what you say. So when I started the church in Tulsa, I started going to tattoo shops, right? And I eventually ended up cleaning their toilets. Talk about getting your hands dirty. I, I cleaned the toilets as an apprentice for a while. But people would say, I got a reputation as the pastor to the parlors. I was going to all these different tattoo shops. And people said, oh, you, you have a tattoo church, right? You're trying to reach. I was like, well, I'm not that. No, um, I just never ran into another pastor there. If I would have gone in and there were three other pastors trying to reach that group, then I would have gone somewhere else. I would have gone to a bakery or something. It didn't matter. But most people, we want to pastor the easy to reach, the low-hanging fruit. And what I keep telling um, our leadership here is all the people that are easy to reach have been reached. Everybody that's easy, the only people left here are the ones that are hard to reach and are going to take years. higher and higher on the yeah. tree as our culture yep. shifts and change. Yeah. And so, um, which is good, I think. You know, let Christendom die. Let this idea that everybody here is a Christian, even though they don't reflect Jesus or go to church or have any kind of spiritual life. But, oh, but well, of course they're Christian, right? So, like, let it die, and die, then the fruit gets lower because all of a sudden people will realize if there's any kind of persecution, we flip out. And I'm like, bring it. Let, let's. Yeah, but I work in a world where persecution is the norm. Yeah. You know, they lose their family, lose their life. You know, those... When you when you get into that world and you begin to see the Christianity they have and the Christianity we have, uh, our Christianity wouldn't last uh, one one beating. You know, mm-hmm. we go, no, we're really not that kind of Christian. You know, and we'd run off. But these people, the gospel is everything, and it's more than life and death itself. So I think if we want to start mentoring or discipling, whatever you want to call it, because they're interchangeable, I think um, there has to be. It begins with the end of Christian coddling, right? Like, so um, this is why I love the people in our church or in my circle that didn't grow up in church. They're so much easier to disciple because their whole life is changing. Um, We are so protected. If you want to, you can spend your whole life as a Christian without engaging any lost people. We say we have God's Walmart, which is Mardell's. So you can go to God's Walmart. Um, you can wear only Christian shirts. You can listen to only Christian music. You can watch only Christian movies. I don't know why you would do that to yourself, but you can watch only Christian movies and never be challenged. And it's the same thing we're facing with a secular culture that we make fun of. Oh, these kids have never been challenged. But we're doing the same thing to Christian kids. There's a coddling of the Christian mind. We got uh, Christian Retirement Center. We got Christian oh, yeah. Mobile Home Park. Right. We got Christian uh, Vacation Spots, yeah. you know. I have the... testaments in my drawer, right? So <laughs> freshen your breath the Jesus way. Yes, you know, and, and, you know. The Daniel Diet, right? We could go on and on. Like I, You know, well, you know, there's, there's things like the Daniel Diet is a biblical way of dieting. But, <laughs> but the thing about it is, just because we put the name, a Christian name on it, doesn't make it Christian. You right. know, it's we we do that a lot. You know, that's we call ourselves a Christian nation, and we're about as far from a Christian nation as yeah. you get, and yeah. we're heading farther away every day. Right. But you know, exactly right. But this generation, they want, they want all the benefits of being a follower of Jesus without doing what Jesus tells you. 
And it's the old saying, if you want Jesus as your Savior, he has to be your Lord as well. We all want a Savior. Nobody wants a Lord. Well, and also he says, deny yourself. Right. And that's where it starts, yeah. and we don't want to do that. So it's a, it's a tough road. Um, this is why when I think, I think it applies so much to biblical maturity, it's the same way it does to individual maturity. God has structured us, and he's, given, he's laid out certain things for a reason. So there's a reason he says, um, don't have kids before marriage, right? No premarital sex, which is not a popular subject. People want to have kids whenever and the marriage looks, you know, constrictive. But when you get married, all of a sudden, if you've not lived with somebody before, this person moves into your house and they start moving your stuff. My wife didn't like that. I kept my socks in the kitchen drawer, right? Under the <laughs> oven. She thought that was wrong. So she starts moving What's my wrong stuff. What's with that? I know. It was nothing. <laughs> Like, because the oven warmed them up, right? So you could put on warm socks in the morning. Um, so all of a sudden, there began to be this conflict in my life where I was having to change things I didn't think I was going to have to change. And so you have two ways to react. You can get angry and tell that person, leave me alone, stop it. Or you can say, it's okay to let go of certain things. And in doing so, you begin to mature. You become less selfish and more selfless. And then all of a sudden you have kids, and when you have kids, as if you have parents that are role model this for you, you're lucky. But I, I remember the car you used to drive that would take us to school. There was a prayer said because there was no, like, we didn't know if it was going to make it there or not. Now, mom had the nice car, but you sacrificed for the kids all the time. So you didn't used to be that way. The orange peel. Old orange peel, the old Honda Civic, it, it, right? It, the doors wouldn't even close correctly. So when you go, it was snowing outside. I remember this. And it was, you're driving in the snow. The snow would come in through the crack and fill up the seats. So you're back there <laughs> in a half a foot of snow on your way to school because of the crack in the door. I remember very clearly that uh, you would drop us off. Or sometimes before we would even get there, you'd have to stop and pour water in the radiator <laughs> to make it to school and work. Like the car would just overheat all the time. And... That is part of your maturity and development. It makes you less selfish. And so I think there's this natural pattern of stripping away things. You know, I, I've copied, not intentionally, but I, I've copied. You used to be a professional skydiver. You had motorcycle. You had hot rod cars. And then you traded off for a station wagon. Well, I had my Jeep Wrangler that I loved. I've had Harleys and sport bikes. And now I'm driving your truck because I don't even have my own car. Why? Because my wife has a new car and my kids have clothes. And so part of this maturity as an individual, I think, very much reflects maturity as a Christian. And that's why there can be no pride in the pulpit. And um, part of the structure for laying out the leadership we think of leadership in the church in the same way we think of corporate leadership, but it's those who want to be first have to be last. It's that servant mentality. So you, in order to get that servant mentality, there's a stripping away of entitlement. You know, and, and a lot of people, they want to be mentored, but the, the, the scripture doesn't really talk about that. It says that whatever you have learned, you pass on somebody else. Right. And so, I only mentor you so you can pour that truth in someone else. You know, right. Jethro uh, in the Old Testament mentored Moses. Moses mentored Joshua. Joshua mentored the leaders of Israel. And it goes on on down. And so if you just want this to be the mentoring just that ends in you, then you're asking for the wrong thing. Right. You want to be equipped so you can impact other people's lives. 
and you got to walk it out. I mean, you know, uh, you'll fall, you'll make mistakes. We all make mistakes. And then we got to pick ourselves up and say, hey, you know, this is the truth and we need to get back to it again and walk with it until it becomes that transformed truth, that transitional truth, that, that character truth and basically what we're going for to be a part of us. Yeah, I, I think that's all good stuff. I, I think one of the reasons we find it now, every church I know of, especially these young church plants, they all talk about doing life together, right? That we want to be, have this community. Everyone's looking for a what community. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't know. I hear um, all these terms, and I'm going, I don't know what it means. It yeah. sounds wonderful. Right. It sounds good. Let's do life together. I don't you know, are we going to be going back to the 60s and do common Quite type frankly, living? I can't do life together with some people because they drive me nuts, right? Yeah. So um, I can't do life because I got two kids and, yeah. you know, and I got, you know. I, I can't show up to eight things a week. Uh, I have two with one on the way. So my, I can't go to your children's basketball game to watch them sit on a bench. I got other things. <laughs> you got other things. I do. I actually just did that the other day. And Adrian had to drag me out of the house. I'm like... This is my only night home, and our neighbor had a basketball game, and she wanted to go and uh, watch, you know. But she's she's walking out that we're going to show that we're there for people, um, which is her spiritual gift. Mine's um, to sit in an office and be by myself. So for somebody like me who can be, um, I get all my talking out on a Sunday, and I don't necessarily, I can be fairly introverted the rest of the week. The idea of doing life together stresses me out. What I like to do is find people that I can relate to, and so when people say, uh, "I want to do, I want to do ministry," I want to reach out to people. I always say, "Find something that you already like, and then find people who aren't believers that are doing the same thing." Because then you have this instant rapport. Well, one thing I admire about you is that you, uh, you know, you'll get in a truck and drive eight hours to a guy who's in a, an accident and dying. And you'll be the only one holding his hand while he dies. You know, uh, you know the your your giftedness is is going into the dark places with people, not going to their basketball game and seeing right, their daughter right. cheerleading. Yeah. But you have a real giftedness of of, of walking into the dark places. I just want to point difference. out culturally that's sexist to assume that if a girl's at a basketball game, she's a cheerleader. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm not right. touching that that's, one. That's your old. That's that's the generation. I'm just kidding. Yeah, uh, I just had to throw that out there because I think it's funny. Um, well, that's that's easy for me though because darkness is honest. Like I feel like in, in the darkness, lost people are so much more honest and open. You know, I, I like the guy who's like, yeah, I got off a of heroin two weeks ago. Because you know if he's willing to tell you that, he's not going to pretend to be something he's not. And Christians, we have this, you know, and there, we could speculate about all the places it comes from, but we, we try to fake it till you make it. So we look good on Sunday, and that's about it, right? Like, so I, I like, I appreciate the gut-level honesty. And I think I, I faked, faked it till I made it for so long. Um, that I enjoyed being around lost people because there was no illusion of where they were at. Well, the fake it till you make it, you know, that's that has been basically a cultural shift in our churches uh, where we have to, to be, we do the role of Christianity in the life of Christ. You right. know, there's, there's a perception that when you uh, quit uh, drinking that you forsake all your friends 
and you move to the new community and you put your kids in a little Christian dribbler and you go to the Christian nightclubs and you go to you know, <laughs> and and you do those kind of things. When Jesus says, you know, basically I saved you out of the darkness so you can so you can be a light in the dark, you know. Right. Not a light in a lighthouse. Right. You know? What good does another light in a lighthouse does? I mean the light mm -hmm. is already there, you know, yeah. you don't need another light in the lighthouse. Right. Yeah. We need the light in the darkness. And mentoring takes you to the darkness, and that's one of the things that people don't understand. And it uh, it wouldn't be a brighter bulb in the in the lighthouse, right? It, it takes you to the darkness, even in people who think they're light, right? Yep. Which is uh, for for us in, in our position, since we deal a lot with trying to mature Christians, I think that is um, one of the things that we have to recognize. We're taking somebody who is the light, supposed to be the light. They're saved, right? And um, reminding them of their how much darkness is still left in their life, right? And uh, there, there's a verse that says, if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And most of us, we become saved. Uh, the, the, if you grew up in a Christian home, you weren't, quote, that bad to begin with, right? So we don't think there's that much that really needs to change. And what I like to do um, is slightly torture people and just take them back over the last couple of weeks and remind themselves of how selfish, <laughs> egotistical, and uh, vain they truly are. Because that's what I try. Like, man, I'm I'm still. I look back on like it's so humbling to to think back and reflect on last week and some of the things I said or thought or did, and just go, yeah, I still got a long ways to go. When do, when do we start to grading sin on a scale? Sin is sin. Whether you're in drugs. Or, you know, uh, the pastor asked a little boy one time, says, what is sin? He said, that's when you spit on your little brother. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that is that is right. sin. It is. And it's sin when you do drugs. Sin right. is sin. You know, right. and darkness is darkness. Uh, and so, yeah, we have a whole progression of what sin is and what sin we allow in churches, what sin we don't allow. This sin is all right. We'll, we, we can live with this one, but we can't live with that one. Uh, adultery um, is overlooked in the church, divorce and things like that. Not a big deal because it, ha it happens so much. But if a gay person walks into the church, we've made homosexuality the greatest sin of all time. And um, I, I don't know what's worse, to have Christians that act like lost people or lost people that act like lost people. Like I, I just, I'm never surprised by the way lost people act. They're lost. So let's stop being shocked by culture being lost. Let's be shocked when Christians act like non-Christians. Um, Let's be more shocked when Christians act like Christians. <laughs> yeah. so, wow, he, he really walking out the life of Christ. So I, I want to end um, with this one thing here, and I appreciate you taking time out of your day to come and visit. And, uh, of course, I, I want to have well, you back again. I understand again. i got a free lunch. If I you do. Today. There's a free lunch out of this. Okay, uh, that's all I'm here for. I, I'd like lunch. for us to talk maybe later on um, about how to preach, how to pastor you are recognized as a great speaker, and people always ask you back, which is a good sign. Because I'm cheap. You know, <laughs> the only reason they might be back is I'm the cheapest pastor yeah. out there they can bring back in. So Somebody reached out to me to do their D-Now, and they said, I know you probably would never do a church this small. We only have 100 kids. I was like, I do three. <laughs> we do three kids. I've done one. Like, a dollar per kid. If you'll just pay my gas, I'll it's do it. It's hard to have a small group when you only have one. Yeah. Right, right. Um, small groups. But I have this thing that I've been using for years, and I, I call it the uh, smell like Moses theology, right? Or belief. I don't know if theology is the right word, but um, 
we don't look forward to growing old in our culture. Like the gray that's coming in on my head pretty quickly, I debated do I darken it or not. But we kind of fear this old age. But it's in those golden years um, where that maturity really is. And so there should be a part of us that gets really excited about, I can't wait till I'm old. Because the most mature, godly guys I know are old. And so the idea of smelling like Moses is um, when I got ordained, all these guys came up and they laid their hands and they pray over you. But there was one guy who's like in his 80s. And he's always been soft-spoken, didn't talk a lot. But when he prayed, like I got goosebumps. The hair on my arm stood straight up. And his little soft voice changed. And then all of a sudden it was like, God, you know, and it's like God turned to him to listen specifically. He just had this maturity from all the difficulty that he had gone through. So I think we should really encourage people. Not only have we lost connection with the older generations, I've really tried to bring the older generation to be a part of uh, the maturity process, but we, we don't look forward to it. And we should look forward to smelling like Moses, to being an old man, because that's where our maturity level um well, I don't know what you called old man. I don't know if I qualify for that. I'm probably ten getting, more years. Ten more years. Mm-hmm. But uh, one thing I find out is I am much more intentional as an older man. Mm-hmm. You know, I write a weekly article. And how many times have I written to Titus and to Cohen? Mm-hmm. You know, my grandchildren, uh, and I've written with the intention of what mentoring them. Okay. Now, now I know uh, a two-year-old is not going to get the article right now, but one of these days he's going to sit down and read what his poppy wrote to him. You know, Titus, I just wrote an article this week to Titus. He won the award for character at his school and the character of, of cooperation. And I wrote an article to him saying uh, uh, character is not an award. It's a life. And I wrote a whole little thing to him about this whole thing called character. Well, it's it's mentoring, it's discipling, it's putting in him, uh, trying to get his little face torn, turned toward Jesus right? so you can see the truth. And yet, uh, we're in a culture, and that's what I like doing overseas, because overseas, uh, uh, being a senior adult is powerful. You know, if you go to China, they fight over who gets sit beside the oldest man in the room, right. because he's a person of wisdom. In our culture, we try to get as far away from a person who has wisdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we need to have a shift in our culture that will accept us as the wisdom giver and life experience, and not as somebody. But I grew up in the 60s who reject everybody over 35 and doesn't trust them, and we're not out to find ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we're still trying to find ourselves because you can't find yourself without older people speaking into you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, you say find yourself. Um, there's no such thing as finding yourself. No. Right? Uh, when I was 18, I moved to California to find myself turned out I wasn't in California and the old AA saying is uh, wherever you go there you are and um, so I think we constantly need people in our lives who as we say to our kids I remember what it was like to be your age don't make the same mistakes as I do there is that intentionality that comes with being older where they speak less and it means more Um, so yeah so uh, you smell like Moses to me. I hope I smell like Moses eventually to my kids. But this idea of Christian maturity, I don't think we stress enough. 
It's too easy. Yeah, I have nothing against big churches with the pastors on the screen and things like that. But the level of one-on-one life together, like we said, we don't know what that means, but um, just calling people towards maturity instead of sound bites. Sound bites, a meme doesn't ever change my mind. I've never seen a meme or uh, some little thing that, that's actually changed my mind. What changes my mind is somebody sitting down and working through something with me and pointing out, I did this, it didn't work, you're doing the same thing I did, here's how I overcame this, here's how I achieved this. And if their life reflects that truth, then I'm much more likely to take their word for it. So, do you have any final words before we wrap it up? Well, I'm getting hungry, and uh, let's go to lunch. All right, sounds great. Thank you guys for listening. I hope this was beneficial for you, and uh, we'll see you next time.